and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and they share their story. They might have overcome something amazing or they might still be on their own journeys with stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully leave you feeling a little bit inspired. Now, if you think of stereotypical reality TV contestants, many go on to carve out full-time careers, either influencing, modeling, or making other telly appearances here and there. And good for them. But certainly that's not the case for my guest today. Dr. Alex George appeared on Love Island back in 2018. He may not have won himself the love of his life, but he won the hearts of millions of fans. He soon returned to A&E, balancing his day job with a resident doctor role on Good Morning Britain and an appearance on Celebrity Masterchef and lots of other projects. He recently brought back his own podcast, The Waiting Room, for its fourth series after it was rested so that he could go and work on the front line during the pandemic. In that time, Alex also endured his own pain of losing his younger brother. It's been a busy year of ups, downs, trauma and tragedy for Dr. Alex, who joins me now. Hello. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. I really appreciate that. It's very. I'm very honoured to be invited on this on this podcast. I think I was just saying before we start recording. You know, you've had some incredible guests. I think you're very inspirational yourself. So it's a it's an honour. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm I'm really inspired by what you're doing. I think you are bringing something to an audience that might not have engaged in in the subject that you're bringing to them if if you hadn't have used this platform for that. Um, there's so many questions I've got, you know, when I do a podcast in front of me now, I've got questions that are written down, but with you, I feel like there's so much I want to ask you. Um, I watched you on Love Island. I, I, I do, I haven't watched it. Oh, yeah, I watched that one <laughs> religiously. So I, I watched you quite a lot and I, I like Love Island. I think it's a good program. It's good entertainment. We need entertainment at the moment. You know, lots of the people are very admirable. They're entrepreneurs. They go on to be really super successful. And when you were on there, I was like, why did he go on there? I, I, I don't get it. Like, what was your motivation when, when you went on there? Well, to be honest, um, I never had kind of, I'd watched the series before with Cam and Chris and all that. And I kind of never had a kind of desire myself to go on the show. I just enjoyed it as like a viewer, to be honest. And um, I, met, I remember watching the final with Chris, uh, sorry, Cam when he won. And I said, you know, it wouldn't be a laugh if I was on that show to my friends. And we, we joked about it, but it was never anything serious. And basically fast forward from the summer to the next kind of January, February. And um, I basically had a message on my Instagram. I don't have a very big Instagram account. It was like 200 followers. And someone messaged me saying, you know, I've seen you on a dating app and I thought you'd be quite good for to be interviewed for Love Island. I was like, no way, I'm not doing it. So at first I thought it was my mates pranking me, honestly. I was like, that's the kind of thing they'd do. So I was like checking with all of them. I was like, guys, is this a joke? Like, this can't be serious. And I thought, oh, I, don't know, I don't know if it's a good idea. And anyway, I got messaged again and I said, I don't like to be rude, obviously, so I replied, I don't, I'm a bit, bit anxious about, you know, entering this conversation. I don't really know if it's for me. And they said, look, let's have a phone call. So we had a quick call and this very, very lovely uh, producer who, well, I owe a lot of this to, I guess now, uh, said to me, look, you know, why not? You know, you are a doctor, but you can, you can at least come for an interview, have a think about it. I think it'd be very kind of fun on the show and it'd be an interesting thing to do. So... I went away, had a think about it and spoke to my consultants. And there was one particular consultant who was a massive fan of Love Island and said, Alex, do you know what? You know, there's no reason you can't be a doctor and go on that mm-hmm. show. Just be respectful, be yourself. You're not going to do anything stupid, but you can live a life. You, you know, doctors date, doctors have relationships, like there's not a problem. So I, anyway, I went to an interview and I think I went there thinking, 
I'm under no pressure here. I'm just going to go and enjoy it. It's an experience. And I walked out of the interview and I felt felt it went pretty well. There was like 20 of us there that went to the interview and I most people were in and out of five minutes. I was one of the last to be interviewed. I'd been there for hours waiting. And I was in there like over an hour. So I kind of knew like it'd gone pretty well. Mm. But then I had a phone call a couple of weeks, not a couple of weeks, a couple of days later. I was actually cycling home from Maine and I, my phone was going off and I pulled over, got off the bike and answered the phone. And uh, it was one of the execs and they said, we've seen your interview back. We think you're perfect for the show. We want you to start as an original. And I was like, oh my gosh, what has happened? <laughs> and it just happened. It, was, it just rolled on from there. Before you knew it, it went from that moment to, you know, uh, doing all these press shoots. I suddenly had to start training and thinking about, you know, trying to look in shape yeah, in some way. Yeah, be topless every day. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure from that point of view. You know, I wasn't in, I wasn't in that kind of shape, you know, and I hadn't really thought of that before. And it was a completely new thing to me. It really was a shock. And, you know, I went on the show as kind of a, why not? Yeah. Why not just do this and just have some fun? I joked with the consultant saying, look, you know, I'm taking a sabbatical time, but realistically, I'm going to be back in a couple of, couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I never expected to be there, you know, the whole show, really. It was quite a surprise. It's really interesting what you said there about um, doctors being real people and doctors having a love life and a private life. Because I feel that this year, you know, we're recording this podcast now, December uh, 2020. This year, we have seen key workers and frontline workers as people and we've clapped for them. And for the first time ever, we've really thought about what you guys are risking by just going to do your job. Um, looking back to kind of March earlier this year, how quickly did your job change in the healthcare um, industry? Yeah, it was a big change. I mean, far flung or far away from the kind of summer of, you know, Love Island that I had. It was, um, it was weird. It, it kind of went from one or two cases of, of, of COVID, uh, you know, in the community. We actually had a um, COVID phone we used in Lewisham Hospital. So I'm an a doctor in Lewisham. And um, we had that phone and we'd go out and see a couple of patients a day in a pod. We had a pod, isolation pod outside and we'd do a swab, we'd assess the patient. Most of the people in the first week or so were very well. So they went home, they isolated and followed our guidance. But then it went so quickly from that to carnage, really. It was, you know, went from that to a patient being admitted, which was very, we, I think we were in fact the first hospital to admit a patient with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it went to being, you know, manically busy, recessful, as having to divide the department into areas, having COVID and non-COVID areas. It really was quite a shock. Um, and we really had to kind of act on our feet because it never happened before. Something like this has never happened before. So we never had to separate areas into what we call infectious and non-infectious. That's not quite quite the right terminology. It's kind of COVID, non-COVID. But you had to think about where you put patients, you know, how you risk stratify the chance of having COVID, which patients need to be intubated, how many beds do we have left, how many ventilators do we have. It was a completely new scenario, a real shock, I think, for a lot of us. This is the thing that I always think is quite impressive and incredible. All the while, you have to seem to be doing this seamlessly, confidently. You don't want patients to lose faith in you. What about the stress levels for you as a real person, as an individual? Yeah, very stressful. I think the thing that caused me... We're used, in A&E, you're used to seeing people that are unwell. We're used to people dying, to be frank. It happens. Mm. That wasn't as much of a shock as maybe people think. The thing that I think shocked us all, we found very difficult, is that this was something, there's no textbook on this. We didn't know anything about this. We had to go back to core principles. Yes, we treat other different infectious diseases. We had some information that we could use from that. But this was a new thing, basically. So 
we had to basically use trial and error. It's not quite as simple as that. We weren't just throwing things at the wind. We were being very cautious with our treatments, but we had to try and find what worked and what didn't. And we did find that. We found that things like you know, initially there was an idea around intubating people quite early. So when they come in and they've got low oxygen, maybe we should be ventilating people early. But what we actually found out later down the line was that you're much better to put people on the front in a, what we call the prone position. And we use a mask that blows air into your lungs to help ventilate the chest while not basically putting them into coma, not putting a tube jam them. But this stuff we didn't know at the start, mm. that was really stressful. And I think the other big point that was really hard, and you alluded to it earlier, was around you know, with patients and stuff, we're wearing this PPE, we're wearing this masks and stuff. And that's not how we used to treat patients. If someone's very sick, I hold their hand, yeah. I might even hug the patient if it's appropriate, you know, and you give a real human element to that, but that's removed. And we had to do it in different ways and try and like show through our voice and, you know, even through gloved hands, trying to give comfort to the patient, but not, not very easy to do. Mm. And having to tell patients and family that they had to be isolated, that family couldn't visit loved ones, that was tough. You know, if someone's dying, I'd usually speak to the family, I'd bring them in. We'd have, we'd try and get a side room, create comfort for the family to have that moment, a very important moment. You know, we all die. Mm. We do all die, not to be morbid, but it's true. Yeah. So, you know, trying to make that moment as comfortable as possible is, is vital. And I think we, we just, it's not the way that we would want people to pass away. It's just, just not, doesn't feel right. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? Because it's the only certainty, well, one of the only certainties in life. Tax and death, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Both pretty similar. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, when you talk about it, it's the one thing we've been preparing for all of our life. But that yeah. doesn't make make the departure any easier. Maybe more for the loved ones rather than the patients sometimes, the people we leave behind. Yeah, because, you know, and it's, it's hard for doctors and nurses because we're calling people and saying, I'm really, really sorry, but you can't come and say goodbye to your mum that's dying or your sister or your brother. And I think that is really hard because then we're playing the kind of good cop, yeah. bad cop all at once. And it's really, really hard. You know, we're not surprised this is happening because there's always going to be a second wave, a proper second wave at some point. But it's just hard on staff as well. It is hard. It's, it takes its toll. And we've had, I don't, you know, we don't forget, we've had staff being unwell. Mm -hmm. We had one of our nurses in, intubated. You know, we had to intubate one of our own staff from the department, you know, yeah. and they were in intensive care for a long period of time and it's been a long road to recovery for them. So that shakes you as well. See, what you're talking about feels like it carries a great level of responsibility in terms of, like you said, it's a first for even the most experienced medical staff. Nobody had, had yeah. been through something like this. And it's so funny when I when I think about the transition of, you know, being in that world of like the red carpet, um, you know, going <laughs> to events, and then you decided to come back to the medical world, unbeknown to you the extent of what would will be happening. Is there any part of you that slightly regrets coming back? Because I don't think we'd judge you for that. I mean, it's very overwhelming where you're um, at, you know. I, I think it was, you know, when I came off the show, and this is back in 2018 now, and when I came off the show, I think the first few months, I just couldn't go back to A&E because it was just so intense. The, the attention was huge. I mean, it still is now, but it's just different. And it's more calm, I think, than it was. But... I didn't feel ready to go back to A&E, but I felt very lost, actually. My, my, I really enjoy my job. I'm very fortunate to have a career that I enjoy. It's stressful sometimes. Yes, I moan about certain aspects. Yes, I think doctors and nurses aren't paid enough, to be honest, and things like that do irritate you in some way. But I love the job itself I love. And so 
I felt lost for a period of time. And the reason I went back selfishly was because I felt it gave me purpose mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed being there. And you're right, Lewisham Hospital, there's no red carpet. It's a very rough <laughs> area in London, actually. Like, I love Lewisham, but it is quite rough in certain parts. A fantastic population. I love the people of Lewisham, but it is an area with its challenges, socioeconomic challenges. But I love it there. And, you know, I, I'm glad I've been a part of all this because I felt a real role. You know, I've got a platform, you know, which I can use for positive things just like you do Katie. Mm. you know you've got a platform that you use and you share your experiences you inspire people and i felt a really real role in this scenario to lift people's mood to give them hope mm -hmm. to advise them there's a lot of scary stuff in the media we all know what the media is like with stuff amplifying everything i just wanted to be a voice of reason in it all and just give clear advice that people could follow without scaring everyone and i hope that's what i managed to do what happens when patients recognize you because that must happen yeah, it happens. It happens more often than not, to be honest. Um, I think it was well now, like a lot of people know that I work in Lewisham. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people actually ask, like, can I see Dr. Alex when I come You'll in? You'll break like, your leg near Lewisham to get yeah. picked up by you. <laughs> <laughs> so people, people kind of expect or wonder if I'm going to be there. But people are brilliant, you know, because they know I'm there to work. And it's, it's not the environment like meeting me outside when I'm having a walk in the park, whatever. It's a different scenario. So, yeah, people ask for a photo and stuff, but generally... People know I'm there because I'm trying to do my job. And I, most of the time they just say thank you and stuff. Yeah. You know, it's so lovely to hear people go, Alex, I, I saw you on Lorraine's show the other day or, you know, I heard your podcast and it, you know, it helped me, it inspired me. And it, it that really motivates me. You know, it makes me feel, do you know what, it's worth this, this hard work, you know. You know what it's like, this world, you know, the yeah. world, that, you know, in terms of not any, I mean, you know, this kind of media, social media, you know, influencing world is very – I mean, I'm new to it. You've been doing it for a period of time. But you get a lot of criticism, you get trolls and all that. So these – like glimpses of light really motivate you I think mm, I think you really hit on something there when you talked about purpose because I think everybody needs purpose and mm. you know whether it's wrong or right Love Island did go through a period of bad press where perhaps people who came out of the show um, became so well known but then it doesn't always reflect your financial situation or your opportunities and that a lot of their privacy is taken away and they it, it ruins their earning potential or they just don't have purpose and like you said they feel like they're they're floating around um you, you, and you mentioned even yourself you know you, you struggled when you first left um yeah it was tough it was tough it was a real I think it's very different when you're kind of rise to, and I hate the word fame or celebrity, but when you rise to that kind of status of people knowing you, if you like. It's one of the most watched shows, steady, isn't it? Everyone, yeah, search high view. It's overnight. Yeah. I, I never, I mean, I never, I didn't know how to use Instagram stories when I came off the show. <laughs> I mean, I had 200 followers on Instagram. I had no idea. I mean, I was, I must have been a laugh really because I have no idea how to use anything. And I went from like 200 followers to a million plus. It was just just ridiculous mm. really you can't you couldn't really believe it you know if you thought you know six seven years ago there would be a show that would give you that kind of you know like, yeah a number of people kind of knowing who you are very 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 odd scenario do you think then they give the right aftercare because you are a big advocate for mental health you mm. talk very openly about it you know what's your opinion that there's been some deaths following the show how do you feel they've got it right or I think I, when I was on the show I, and I came off the show, they were, I must say, I think they're really good to me. And they still, they still call me now. I get a random phone call and they're like, Alex, just checking in. How are you? Chat for half an hour. See how you go. And do you need to speak to anyone? Like, they've been really good to me. But I think one of the things I noted um, after I left the show, and particularly after the sad passing of Mike Thalassitas, I said, what we need to be careful of is to make sure that you're asking 
everyone and, and then you're giving people the opportunity for therapy at regular intervals to everyone because people like me I, I'm generally someone that's always been pretty open heart mm. on the sleeve if I'm struggling I'll ask for help I will you know maybe not as a typical I don't like to use stereotype men but it's true like I'm probably not your more typical man in that sense I will ask and speak about how I feel but other people might not so was there the aftercare available yes but was were people directly asked enough about how they're doing and put in scenarios where they could open up maybe that's where the problem was and so I know that they changed that after that so that everyone now gets therapy at intervals. Everyone right. is offered support. They now check up on everyone regularly to make sure everyone's okay. But one of the things I would say, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this because you, you know, you've kind of experienced, you, you've kind of been in this world for a lot longer, but I think some people are more suited to it than others. And some people are maybe more able because of their family structures, their support networks, their background professionally, their age, I think as well, are more in a position to cope with it like you know I worked in a job that was stressful I've got a good family and friends I'm a bit older a lot of contestants at the time were 20 and I was 27 28 mm. some people just maybe the type of people they are is not suited to being you know known and trolled and dealing with that stuff I don't know what, what do you think well I think you're totally right that age is a big factor because if we all think about ourselves in early 20s I could have never have coped with something like that in my early 20s or not necessarily coped but ma maximized it and, and made it into something good you know I could probably would have ruined the opportunity so yeah I think that's a big factor but I think you're right it's about your setup before you go in you know do you come from a stable background are you fortunate enough to have entrepreneurial parents what is your financial financial situation prior to going in because to come out with you know half the country knowing who you are could you then go back to your day job could you start a new job you know what's the longevity it's it can be a great opportunity for some people but what's the longevity of that opportunity and and to be lifted up so high and then to be dumped from such a great height is is quite cruel, really. For them, it is. It is. You're put on this pedestal, aren't you? You're kind of put on this pedestal, and it doesn't last. And I think you have to create something else. I mean, I, I came out of the show and I thought, I was kind of like, who am I? What do I want to do? And I thought, well, I don't really get this world very much, but what I do understand is what I'm passionate about. I like health. I'm support. I'm. I've always been very passionate about mental health before any of this happened. It's something that's been an area of interest for me as a doctor and. I really thought, well, this is an opportunity to do something positive with. So I just focused on that. I didn't do any club PAs. I've never, I, I would, I'd hazard a bet. I'm probably the only Love Islander never to have done a club <laughs> appearance. There's nothing wrong with it if you enjoy it, yeah. but it's not for me. So I didn't do it. What I'm saying is just doing odd deals and random brand mm. deals and stuff like that. I think that's very hard to stick to that. It's very few people who can make a career out of that. You have to find your area. I mean, take Adam Collard, for example, like he was a personal trainer. Mm -hmm before very smart guy actually really successful fantastic shape he's come out you know he's got his gym he's got his app and he's got his training programs and that's all he does that's what he does that's his niche and he does it well he's made a career out yeah. of it so third place. i suppose then really like in the podcast we often talk about kind of advice that other people can pick up and life lessons and things so i suppose in there there's a lesson behind sort of short short-term you know long-term gain short-term gain and you sort of follow something you were passionate about, which is what we'd all love to do, but isn't always necessarily lucrative and possible and, and not getting sidetracked by something for short term gain. And actually, in the end, it has worked out well for you because you stay true to your beliefs while still keeping your hand in doing some stuff within the media that you're genuinely interested in. 
I think I think you're right. And I think following your purpose and passion in life is much more likely to make you happy than chasing money. Mm. If you're trying to create things for followers or you create things for engagement, you're creating things to try and get like money or whatever, chances are what you create won't be very good. It won't do as well as you hope. Mm. If you just focus on what you want to do and create the content that you want to make, uh, in time, everything else will, will kind of kind of follow like my podcast the waiting room is quite a niche really in a lot of ways you know i've talked about different health issues like whether it's acne or skin conditions or this mental health or it's exercise but it's a health podcast mm-hmm. it's not a massive podcast and, but i enjoy it yeah and i love it and i have a good group of listeners that enjoy it and, and it will grow in its own time in this series like i said to you earlier we're, we're we're celebrating healthcare heroes from air ambulance doctors to people who worked in war zones to setting up pediatric hospitals in in pakistan you know i've had some amazing guests and I just really enjoy making the content and if people listen to it great that's it that's mm. that's that's fantastic and doesn't have to be a massive amount of people if it makes a difference and 10 people enjoy it then it's a podcast worth making but, you know I think that's important people compare too much yeah you know? just do for you do for you there's a lot happening these days but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, you hungry people. I bring news. Yes, season five of Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner, is upon us. The world may have been in meltdown, but I've been using my time wisely, sharing fabulous meals with fascinating people and asking them prying questions. As a long-serving restaurant critic, my theory has always been that the best interviews happen over food, and the proof is this podcast. In season five, you'll find me dining my guests in top restaurants or with lockdown-compliant takeaways over Zoom. People like Darren Brown. Well, I do like a Gruner Feltler. Does you do that by the glass? Yeah. Yes, we do. What would I like? What would you... <laughs> Don't start. Oh, do, I, <laughs> do I have to guess? Paloma Faith. I've also been told off for telling Samuel L. Jackson what to do. Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Just bring it all in. He's, he's shucking the oysters. He's somebody's shucking oysters. <laughs> The oysters are being shucked at the boot of the car, apparently. Noel Clark. So we have lobster miso. Oh my god. Oh my. <laughs> Philippa Perry. I always like a man in makeup because they're, they're improved by it, but I hate false boobs. Hate them. Tom Allen. I do know a bit about patissier because I knew what a ganache was before any of my friends at school did, but then they were actually quite happily getting fingered so (laughs) and more so subscribe now in all the usual places episodes drop weekly from tuesday the 26th of january 2021 You're leaving A and E and you're moving uh, yeah. to be a general pa- practitioner. Was was that a, a choice affected or driven by COVID? Uh, no, I think it was something that was coming for a long time. I, I really want to work more in uh, the realm of kind of prevent to, prevention rather than cure and looking at how that we 
how we basically can make changes to our lives that impact, you know, our happiness and our overall health. So, you know, it's, it's kind of premise between behind my book, Live Well Every Day, which, you know, is, is something I've been working on for a long time, this book. And it, yes, the pandemic made me really focus on it because it struck me that people now more than ever really care about their health. They realise that they need to stay active, fit and healthy, the role of being outdoors and nature on their mental health. And the reason I wrote the book was to try and capture all that mm. and put all the things I've learned in my professional experience, in my life, the mistakes I've made, the good decisions that I've made, and trying to put them into a book that will help people. And And as I was writing the book, I thought, look, I really want to do more of this. And uh, general practice is a way of doing that. Mm -hmm. You can have real interventions in people's lives and follow the changes. Like if you come to A&E and I see someone who's had a heart attack and a diabetic, I can sit there and talk to them about all the changes they can make, how they can adapt, make adapt, um, adapt their lifestyle and things like that. But I can't follow that up. Yeah. I can't be there along the way and help them change that over time. And you could do that as a GP. But and that's what's special, I think. It's so interesting you saying about the book, because when I was looking at your Instagram, I thought, oh, it's really good how sort of you're, you're giving out advice, you're educating people, you're showing the realities of what's happening at work. And, you know, your audience might not have really looked into the medical world or, or read newspapers that cover that kind of information. So so you're really like educating lots of people. But I did wonder, I bet he gets loads of DMs of like a pussy <laughs> and spots and, and bit and like what's what's this rash and like do you get lots of intrusive kind of DMs? <laughs> you get you get quite a lot, yeah. You get you get people asking, can you have a look at this rash and stuff? Like that. I mean, sometimes in places that you don't necessarily want to see. Yeah. Like, so you get you get all sorts of sundry. Yeah. But um, I, I I just say to people, look, I cannot advise you through over Instagram. You know, it's an educational platform, but you of course you can be so careful with these things. You can't you can't possibly tell people what to do over over a DM. You know. But um, yeah, you get you get a lot of people. I think it's really it's really good. Though. It's like you said, the, the people. Are, I think the idea, the notion that young people don't care about health is absolute rubbish. It's not it's true. Like when people used to say people don't care about young people don't care about the environment. Most times, kids going home telling their parents to recycle, uh -huh. not the other way around. Mm. So it's the same with health. And I've got an audience. You know, I think half of my Instagram following is around twenty five to thirty five, and then another significant group around eighteen to twenty five and thirty five and over. So there's a really nice demographic of people who are all actually quite interested in health mm. and importantly they're interested in mental health too because that's something that we need to uh, focus on in, in the next few years obviously you know you mentioned oh, my brother my brother passed away this this summer it's been you know it's been a really difficult time but one very of the things recent, that I tried to yeah and I'm still very much grieving over it it's not something you ever really get over is it but you just I have to kind of use I guess some of the strength that I have to kind of make positive change around around mental health and try and change education at school so that people are educated properly for how to look after themselves, what to do when things go wrong, that there's counselling at, at schools as well. So that basically when you, what you want is a group of people, sorry, a population of people who are just very comfortable at talking about their physical and their mental health. You know, I find it interesting, people, if you had a cough or cold, they're straight down the GP right? And they straight away, you know, they wouldn't wait until they had a severe pneumonia to go there. They would go most often, you know, initially straight away, they'd notice some symptoms. But it strikes me that people will have debilitating depression or mental health symptoms before they see anyone. And sometimes the first time we see them is very sadly in the emergency department mm. when it's all gone wrong. And until people are really and truly comfortable to seek help to talk to people to be open about their thoughts and feelings and how they truly feel about themselves or their happiness i think society's got to you know be relentless in in changing that because 
it's just so sad, isn't it? You know, some of the cases I see where someone's yeah. taken an overdose or they've injured themselves and I ask them and they say, well, yes, you're the first person I've talked to. Mm. Isn't that a failure of society? It's really To difficult. me, that's what I feel. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, you, you touched there about, you know, your own personal experience of your brother passing. Um, and with suicide, you know, behind that can sometimes been years leading up to that with, with the family privately. Other times it can completely come as a shock. Was this something you and your family were going through for years? No, we weren't. It was a shock. Uh, and I mean, that in itself is very hard because, of course, I'm an older brother. He's 10 years younger than me. Uh, Clear is 19 years old, going to go to medical school. A very, very talented kid, actually, really, really good good child and good good man really you know become such a good person um but he suffered in silence and that's really really sad and obviously there's an element of guilt for me that i was up here in london fighting all the covid stuff trying to teach you know educate the public around around what to do and look after the general population but yet my brother was at home suffering so there's a huge emotional burden for me around that because i have you know you have to how can I ever accept that feeling you know, that my younger brother couldn't ask me for help? You know, given all the stuff I've done, all the stuff he's seen me do, he still couldn't ask me. Mm. So it's very, very, it's very tough. And that's a difficult pill to, to swallow, an impossible one, really. You know, I just have to carry that weight as long as I live, really. But I think you being a public figure, you, mu you must identify with, it's actually really easy to talk to strangers, talk on platforms and actually really confining in the real people in our lives, the ones closest to us, is more challenging for everybody. It is. It um, is. And I also, I, I see things, I guess I'm quite, because of my background, I'm quite pragmatic in some ways. And I think, you know, if he wanted to, he could have. And there was there would have been opportunity. And he knows full well that I would have been there for him mm. in a second. I would have dropped everything up here. Nothing would have been important to me. You know, it would have checked all, my priorities would have changed in a millisecond. But... I can't you can't, you can't force people you you can only try and help no. and encourage and you can you can only be there for people and I think when people say how do you support people that are struggling the most important thing to do is just be there be a be someone to listen you know ask how they're doing be understanding empathetic help guide people but you can't you can't go into people's heads and change what's going on inside there. You can only help. And had he appeared and presented as perfectly well, then you weren't aware of any mental health issues. I think he was uh, in the last. Yeah, well, in the last couple of weeks prior, he was becoming quite anxious around the COVID stuff, and I think, you know, he was very nervous about his exam results. You know, he had big results coming. You know, he needed to get his results for medical school, and maybe an element of that pressure as well. I think that did put pressure on him. Uh, it was all too much, you know, this isolation. I mean, Wales uh, isolated for the longest period of time, even though they had the least number of cases, which is a completely separate issue, but something obviously that I'm kind of furious about now is that, you know, why were they in such a lockdown? You know, they, we, pubs were opening in London and we were really hard hit and yet Wales was still in a lockdown. You've got this 19-year-old boy who's at home with his parents who's locked in the countryside. Mm. I mean... It's not good, is it? You know, it's just terrible. And I hope when we look back, we can think a little bit about those things. And I think the impact, the mental health impact of this pandemic has been huge. I mean, that's an understatement, really. Well, I wondered if you were torn because firsthand you've seen, you know, catastrophic, you know, you know what's happening with people's mental health, the effect that it's happening. But then also firsthand, you've seen people's physical health deteriorate yeah. in, in respiratory wards. I wondered when you go on Instagram, because then you've got your public life as well, that my question was going to be, well, what frustrates you the most? Do you hate seeing people partying on their Instagram story? But then there must be another side to you that think, well, people need connection. People need to stay it's, well. I'm very, I'm very torn. I'm very torn. I do think that we have to... 
we have to endure. Like, let's be honest. Like, I look, I, I've been on my own since February. This pandemic broke my relationship down. I've been up here um, doing this on my own, coming home from seeing pretty tough stuff to mm. say, sitting in an empty <clears throat> house. And, you know, all these restrictions they impact people on their own more than anyone. Because I don't care what anyone says about bubbling up with other people, you don't see them very much. Mm. Because where would you go? I wouldn't, you'd usually spend time with your friends in the pub or doing things like that. So, yeah. invariably, those who live alone get hit the hardest, to be honest. And so, I have to endure it. So I do feel that other, if I have to endure it, then other people should as well. But having said that, I do think we have to take into account the implication on people's mental health. So at the same time, I do think people should do as much as they can to safely see people. So, you know, I go for lots of walks. I get out on the common. I go to Richmond Park. I walk with my friends because I'm allowed to do yeah. that. And it's safe. We can stand apart. We can be careful. And I can interact with people because you have to. It's important. We're people. We're we're designed as human beings to be in groups and in families we're not supposed to be isolated mm. so i've done shed loads of zoom calls and facetimes i've met with people walking i've been very fortunate to see people at work in a and e and have very close friendships at a and e as well so that's really helped me but yes i do think you know we can't drop the ball the reason that a and e departments around the country are in the state they're in at the moment the reason that things are looking quite you know bad at the moment in the hospitals is because the virus has been spread and the way it spreads is by people coming into contact. Having said all that, though, you, Alex, the person in your home, yeah. what do you miss doing the most? <laughs> or what do so you not? Of, we were talking about what we don't miss note. doing, weren't we, before we started? I said yeah, I don't miss yeah. having to kiss people when you have to air kiss at events because <laughs> yeah. I hate... I always end up like... I'm not very good at those nuances, yeah. yeah like the kind of uh, social nuances, yeah, yeah, like how to say hello properly and stuff. What am I missing the most? I just miss being able to go to the pub with my friends, have a few drinks, start worrying, you know, go to my family's house, you know, go for a drive and enjoy time. I, I'm... I just want to feel that we're around people. I don't feel that I need to shake people's hands. I don't mind that. I'm not bothered. My loved ones, my loved ones, my close friends, I want to give them a hug when I haven't seen them for a while. We, we are, it's nice with the people that you know and you love. And The handshake I, I, can go, because really they say that men never yeah. wash their hands after a wee anyway, so I don't want there any more handshakes. <laughs> it's, why, it's why nuts have gone off bars, isn't yeah. it? You think the nuts are the dirtiest, dirtiest things ever. That would have been covered in COVID, wouldn't it, if that was still a thing? Um, so I think that's the main thing. But I'm also looking forward to simple things. Sport, I love sport. Okay. I want to go back and watch rugby matches. Yeah. I want to enjoy all that kind of stuff. I just want my freedom back. Mm. And actually, the first thing I want to do, once I've seen all my family and friends and stuff, is I want to go on holiday. Oh, I do. I really yeah. want to go on holiday. Yeah. I want some... I've got very pale skin, but I'd love some warm warmth for my skin. Yeah. <laughs> so nice and warm. I think we can all agree What about you? What would you, what, what, what would you like to do? Um, I suppose, like, part, a lot of this is really convenient for me, logistically, in terms of my career, because I've got children. So, like, even today, me and you are doing this on Zoom. That means I can still go and pick my kids up later whereas normally I'd be in central London stuck in traffic so it's, it's actually as a woman who wants to work and have a family this is more empowering so yeah. that is positive but I think like you travel being spontaneous not having to oh, book yeah. everything you can just turn up um, if you are doing work that requires real face-to-face -face contact that sometimes means you're overwhelmed with emotion where you reach out and touch someone's arm or you hug them like it would be nice to it's not a problem yeah, yeah. it's okay to do that and not yeah. foresee and plan that and make it secure yeah. you know I, I I kind of I've lost the spot even just going to the shop spontaneously and forgetting your mask you know it's just like oh gosh 
But I think you're right that there's things that we will take from it as a... I think the first, the, the one of the best things we'll take from it is that people I hope now really appreciate and realise how lucky we are with the NHS. We're so lucky. Yeah. The NHS, and I say this, and I know I'm one of the member of them and I'm, I'm not trying to tap myself on the back, but honestly, as someone that's, you know, I, I had sepsis once and, you know, St. Thomas's Hospital in London saved my life. But the NHS is an incredible organisation. We need to protect it. We need to make sure it's funded properly. But the other things we've learned from, from the COVID uh, pandemic as well is that you can communicate by... Look, we've recorded this podcast via zoom essentially or you know similar we've done we, you're able to kind of speak to people around the world you can do business meetings from afar mm. we can do one of the amazing things we've done you know i did a lecture for all um bma students so medical students who are starting at med school i did the lecture from my lounge to medical students around the country and they all got to listen we all were engaged people could ask questions we could have you know you wouldn't be able to do that otherwise didn't i can't go and visit shoes, every like... single one didn't have to wear <laughs> yeah. shoes didn't have, didn't have shorts on i was with my boxers <laughs> like no problem it, it, it's just great really isn't it <laughs> mm. no it, it does have some advantages so what about you you've led this really interesting well i was going to say interesting career but it's been not just an interesting career it's been an interesting life in a relatively short time because you're still how old are you now I'm turning 30 in a couple of months. In February, I'm turning 30. Yeah, so that is... Big birthday coming. That's quite young for the achievements and the the road you're on. Um, I wondered, what are your aspirations personally and professionally from here on? My biggest life goal, I think, if I was to achieve it and go, I really feel like I've I've done... the biggest thing I wanted to do would be to get this meaningful change in the curriculum at schools. If I can get change and feel that we actually educate our children properly around mental health and we support them with counselling services from the age of 14 to 18, so they leave with that toolkit, that mental health toolkit they need to look after themselves, that would be my biggest goal mm. you know, of my life. That would be the biggest thing. And that's what I'm going to work at for 2021. It's my biggest goal to get done. And I think for me, I just, you know, and personally, I, 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 I really hope that me and my family can find some peace after what's happened yeah. but I can find happiness and, and, and things I'm generally a happy person even now with everything that's happened I am happy but I just hope that we can move forward and that we you know my mum and dad can be happy and that they can enjoy the rest of their lives because it's so hard for them mm. um, and I also I also hope that you know I can have some fun along the way I've been very fortunate you know this world for all of the ups and downs I've got to meet incredible people people like yourself i get to do things like podcasts <laughs> like this i get to go on tv i get to you know enjoy i love cars i get to enjoy cars and mm. things like that like i really just want to live in the moment i think one thing covid i think a lot of people will say this as well covid has taught us to live life you know live your life enjoy it mm. don't worry too much what other people think we, we, we spend too much time you know what if what they think you know would they judge me for doing that as long as you know you're respectful and it, certainly you know you're not causing anyone any harm in any way live your life enjoy mm-hmm. yourself yeah absolutely. enjoy life you never know what will happen yeah i think we all we all now realize that i think it's, it's such a valuable lesson of 2020 so if any of us want to support your work read your book um help you with your campaigning where where can the listeners go to do that well, I, on my Instagram, I'm going to be keeping everyone updated about what we're going to do next year around the campaigning, around mental health. And I love people to support that. It, it's about many people supporting a cause, not just a few. It needs to be all of us doing it. So if people, if the listeners of this you know, amazing podcast could support that, I'd appreciate that. My book, Live Well Every Day, is available for, for pre-order now. So head to Amazon, you can pre-order it. Uh, it'll be out in, in the early of next year. So please do um, you know, take a look at that. And of course, my podcast, The Waiting Room, um, is currently you know, in its fourth series at the moment moment so we've got some amazing guests you know absolutely honestly i've been astounded by the people we've had on there you know as a medical professional my 
myself, some of these people have gone over and above who've operated in war zones and mm. just incredible stories. So take a listen to it. You might you might find it inspiring. Oh, thank you. Amazing. Thank you, Alex. You have been extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Casey Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.